Some, uh, well, okay, let's get started here. How about if I open in prayer for us? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this group. Thank you for the calling to proclaim your word in specific uh, contexts and to specific groups and congregations and Pray that you would teach us and glean some new things um, and learn uh, new ways to, to make your word clear as we preach the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, let me, so did you guys have, has the bishop done one session on preaching yet or not? This is the first one. He's done one session. The theme of it was remembrance preaching. Ah, anamnesis? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So he really didn't get into like sort of a how-to. So, so I'm going to talk about um, <coughs> the, the title of this is really focuses on the first three minutes of your message. Okay, so and that is where, of course, that you have to think a lot about, um, so the first three minutes you're gonna do certain things like you're gonna, you're gonna focus, you're gonna bring people into the scripture, you're going to create a sense of urgency. Um, so there's a lot going on at the beginning of the sermon um, that requires a lot of work to get there. Um, so, and, and I just wanna say, um, you know, one of, I think one of the most important things about, two, two things about preaching that um, we won't really cover, and, and, and one is that preaching is very contextual, depends on who you're talking to, where you're talking to people, what context. Um, so if there is something that happens with a specific preacher, with a specific group of people, the Holy Spirit, comes and meets them there in that moment um, that you really can't teach, you know, but just to keep that in mind, that that's a really important part of preaching is that dynamic, that sort of three-way dynamic between the preacher, the congregation, and the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, sort of uh, that is all going on all at the same time, and that is unique. Um, an utterly unique experience. Um, and then the second thing is that the part of that is the preacher. Um, and we'll talk, we'll use preaching in, in just its broadest sense of it could be Sunday morning context, um, Sunday morning worship service, or it could be, um, you know, sharing with youth group, or it should be, could be doing a sharing on TI, about a specific, but it is about a specific biblical text usually okay so so when I talk about preaching let's that's sort of the definition that I have in mind and don't necessarily think of a Sunday morning service at res you know it could be broader than that um, but it's usually not it's not like a testimony I'm just sharing my personal personal story and here's a Bible verse at the end you know that kind of goes with it not that there's anything wrong with that but that's just sort of outside the scope of it so but anyway all that to say that it is really important that the Lord works through you. Um, so we talk about finding your preaching voice. Um, 
which can be kind of sappy, but but it's also I think there's a lot of truth to that that the Lord wants to work through you and your personality and your gifts and um, that otherwise the you know it, it wouldn't be incarnational at all. He could just write the message in the sky or just say, okay, so for tomorrow. Uh, this morning's sermon, we're going to read, uh, we're just going to read Romans chapter 12 through 16, and that's the sermon today, you know, so God actually works through the personality of the preacher, it's really incarnational, I, I love that about, I love that about God, because he lets us in the process, yeah. What's that? Oh yeah, yeah, here you go, here you go, so here, let me give you this, we're actually, this is actually pre my thing here, so... Okay, here we go. So let me start. I'll start with, um, yeah, you guys just feel free to just, like, got a comment, got a question, you know, whatever. So it's just three of you. We could just, like, pretend we're, it's not even a formal teaching. Um, so, yeah, let me, let me start, let me start with three myths of preaching. And, um, so, um, number one is you should not be nervous or afraid. Number two, you must be an expert Bible scholar on every matter. Um, and number three, you are incredibly important as a preacher. <laughs> You're not. But you are important, but not incredibly important. So, let's look at the first one. I, I love this. This is one of my uh, favorite passages about preaching in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And do all of you know who, uh, all of you know John Stott? Okay, so, so your generation has not forgotten John Stott, right? Okay, good. So he was one of my heroes, and just a, a fabulous preacher, you know, and just so clear and, and concise, um, and so engaged with culture, too. He just read so widely about cultural issues that were raging in his day, that are still raging in our day. But, um, but anyway, this was his favorite passage about um, preaching. So um, let's see. Becca, why don't we have you read that? get into Paul's sort of like um, being a little self-deprecating here because he actually did come with a very well-reasoned and the, but he was more critiquing sort of the Corinthian mindset the mindset in Corinth um, but and kind of deconstructing that but but what do you notice about just him but I don't think he's exaggerating about or, or uh, I think he's being very just very straightforward about his own personal feelings about preaching and and what do you notice there what how does he describe that it's more about spirit's power than about well well said yes yeah 
right. There's a obvious humility in it. Because, um, you know, we look at Paul and are just kind of like, wow, he's this great evangelist. Yeah. Um, but he's just kind of like, I came and there's fear and much trembling, right? Like there's the humility almost in how he came about. And yeah. He approached that. Humility, trust in the spirit, <clears throat> humility, anything else? Yeah, there's like a self-forgetfulness. Um, really so, self-forgetfulness. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, yeah. Um, yeah, not coming Yeah. Yes, that's really good. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really struck by those. Um, the, the three words, uh, and well, the two words of the phrase. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You know, I just, not just a little bit of trembling, but much trembling. Um, and um, I just, I really, that gives me a lot of hope and, and encouragement because, um, it's a it's a really awesome thing to stand up in front of a group of people and say, "This is the word of the Lord through me for you today." You know, and I'm going to explain it. I'm going to illustrate it. I'm going to apply it to this context. And the Lord has given me that authority, and it's 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 an awesome thing. Um, so, and I've been doing it for 27, 27 years. Um, so eight years in my first church, five years in my second church, 13 years, or um, nine years out of Long Island, and then I don't know how long here, four, five, six years, you know, but, um, but I still get, once I start, I'm fine, you know. But I still get nervous beforehand, and then I still get—I wouldn't say it's—I get nervous, but I get um, sometimes I get sort of uh, brutal in my self-critique after I've preached, you know. So I have—I get what I call the post-sermon blues, you know. Just kind of like, oh man, I wish I would have said that better, or I could have done that better, or that was too long, or I could have so. Anyway, so I kind of, it's, and some of it I think is, some of it I think is spiritual warfare. Some of it is because, I mean, if I was Satan, I wouldn't want God's word to be proclaimed, you know? Because, so, um, so some of it's spiritual warfare, some of it just really hooks all of the insecurities and anxieties that already reside in me. And, and I know some preachers don't struggle with this. Some don't struggle with it at all. Um, but I think most do. It just hooks a lot of our own issues. Um, it just has a, because it's a very vulnerable act. It's very vulnerable. Um, and Paul is being very vulnerable here. So anyway, the first thing is God can use us even if we're nervous and afraid. Um, and we come in fear and weakness, weakness and fear and much trouble. Um, the second thing is, um, now I'm a big fan of good exegesis and I'm a, and a good, big fan of um, careful study 
but I like this quote. So this is a preaching mentor of mine named Daryl Johnson. He's a homiletics professor out at Regent College in Vancouver. He says, uh, uh, expository preaching is not about getting a message out of the text. It is about inviting people into the text so the text can do what only the Holy Spirit can do. The preacher's role is not that of an expert, but that of a, a guide as at an art exposition, pointing to, calling attention to the essential aspects of the reality about which the text is speaking. As the preacher does this, something happens. The preacher and the congregation begin to participate in what the risen Jesus, through the Spirit, is doing in and with the text. Okay, so that's a mouthful. What do you think he's saying? Anybody want to take a stab at it, or at least part of what he's saying? What do you What do you think he's? How would you put that in your own words? I really like his uh, uh, metaphor of being, being a guide of architecture. Yeah, um, that's really interesting because you're sort of like inviting the, uh, the people who are viewing the pieces of art, and you're inviting them to engage, in, um, and you're just kind of guiding them and how to. Yes. But, um, so that's like a really helpful uh, metaphor to me. Yeah. It's good. Anybody else? I think I like the language of both the preacher and the congregation participating in what the what Jesus Christ is doing through the Holy Spirit rather than just like like just your average teaching where you're just intaking like like information. And sometimes that's how I always experience felt like I experienced preaching or how the church experienced preaching or just just an intake of information rather yeah. than rather than a participation in this act of the word of the Lord. Hmm. I don't yeah. know. I like that. Yeah. You don't have to say anything. Yeah. yeah. I like the inviting people into the text. Because um, so much of exegesis feels like being above the text and dissecting it instead of like and, and finding meaning in it, whereas this is more like the text, allowing the text to help you find meaning in your own life and just having it yeah, over us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'd like, so it's like, um, he's got this, Daryl Johnson in his book called The Glory of Preaching, he's got this little diagram where it shows, here's the, here's the sort of traditional view of what we think about preaching. Here's the preacher. We send the preacher off to study the text, do all the exegesis, construct the sermon, then the preacher comes back and downloads that to the congregation, you know, so... Instead, he says, no, we do send the preacher off to study, to pray, to get hear the word of the Lord for this congregation. And then the preacher comes, and then together we go explore this text. You know, So the preacher is like this. I love that image of the, the tour guide. Um, I've, I've expanded on Daryl's Im image and said this traditional view is more like the preacher is a, um, is a, is a, a cliff diver. Those guys that dive off the cliffs and they're they're like amazing and people come and watch them and you go, that's amazing. 
I would never do that, but that's really cool what, what he's doing up there, you know? I, I'm in awe of that. Um, and so I don't want people to come away from my sermon thinking, oh, man, that exegesis was amazing. I could never read the Bible that way, you know? Um, now, people, I mean, there is, obviously, we're, we're sending people to this holy task to do this, so there is something, and they have more time to do that than the average person, so there is something that's like, wow, that is pretty cool, but I want it to be much more, hey, let's come along, let's look at this together. Um, let's, let's discover the text together, so, or let me show you, let's walk through this together, and I'll, like, a, like the, uh, the guide at an art museum, it's like, notice that painting over there is it notice the way he uses the colors you know and, and what do you see and but you're doing it together um, so anyway that's just a really powerful image for me of what preaching can be and should be um, <clears throat> by the way you guys interrupt anytime okay so um, the third thing myth is that you are incredibly important um, so, um, let's see. Caleb, why don't you go ahead and read those quotes all by St. Augustine, okay? Yeah. First one is, I am the servant, the bringer of the food, not the master of the house. I lay out before you that from which I also draw my life. When I explain these things to you, I am waiting table on Christ. You, when you listen quietly, are reclining at the table. When I'm preaching, I am standing and waiting on table on you. Therefore, the preacher should be a person of prayer before he is a speaker of words. Before he uses his tongue, he should raise his parched soul to God that he may gush forth what he has drunk in and pour out what has filled him up. Okay. It's pretty self-explanatory, but any, any thoughts on that? There's different. There's there's so many different styles of preaching. So there's a the, the deep. And basically, I'm talking about a deductive sermon. So I have a, a main idea, a main theme. I'm gonna lay that out front early in the sermon, um, either explicitly or implicitly. But it's clear what I'm talking about. This is the topic. This is what I'm gonna say about that topic. And. Um, and then I'm going to lead you into the text, and then we're going to start exploring it. As opposed to a, 
inductive sermon, which um, I think they're they're really they can be really effective. Um, they're harder to write. Um, I think they require for most preachers they require more finesse, more artistry, um, higher difficulty factor. You guys familiar with like Olympic diving? So Olympic diving they add points for difficulty factor of the dive. So if it's a, if it's a harder dive, you get up to I think it goes from uh, up to four point, four additional points for the difficulty factor. So so if you try a really hard dive, it's a difficulty factor of 4.0, you know. So anyway, that has a that has like a higher difficulty factor. Um, so but the inductive sermon, you you usually start with like a question, a human problem, a human need, something that people can um, really relate to, and then you sort of you kind of back into that, you kind of move into the text, and then you kind of slowly, you might like reject this option, reject that option, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, and then you kind of finally come to, boom. But notice this in the text, it says this, boom, that's that's sort of the, the big idea. So you kind of work your way into the big idea. So anyway, again, I think those are harder to write, and I, I would encourage you guys, um, but they, they can be really effective because it's, it's more sort of, it creates more tension in the sermon, you know. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, that's a good question. I think about that a lot. What's the answer to that? And then you don't get the answer right away. So it kind of, it creates more tension. But again, it's harder to do. So I would encourage you to try, try it this way, just the deductive, just kind of put it out there, be really simple and clear. You, almost all the sermons you hear at Brad's are deductive, you know. Um, but... Um, I did do one inductive sermon a while ago, but um, but um, so this is a basic deductive sermon. So um, and again, there's different styles of doing it, but I just think these principles are really helpful. Okay, so the first is obviously, um, and then, then we're going to look at a couple case studies. So we'll look at a couple examples of the first three or four minutes of sermons, and we'll see how this plays out. So. Obviously, love and trust your text. That's that comes before everything. This is the word of God. It's not my ideas about it. I am just, I am like a, um, I am just trying to understand what the Lord is saying in this text. What does it mean to the original author? What does it meant to the life of the church? Um, what does it mean in light of the the whole narrative arc of Scripture? You know. Um, so that's where your exegesis comes in. Um, and the, the Word of God, and I know this is, you guys probably know this, but the Word of God is living and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it has, it has power. I, w- I remember once I preached, a few summers ago, I preached on the book of Obadiah, um, which my, I told people, I asked a few people after the ser- service, I think I asked you. I, I, I thought maybe I asked somebody. No, maybe it wasn't you, but it was like, was that not the best sermon you've ever heard on Obadiah? So that was my favorite question. And people said, it was the only sermon I've heard on Obadiah. I said, exactly, but it was the best, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, so Obadiah is this little book about the, um, oh man, who, who are, what's the people group? Um, oh man, I can't remember. Here, it's, it's the, the people... 
Um, it's one specific people group that Israel had a long and bitter history with, okay? So it's basically God's judgment on, on them. Um, is it, was it Ebionite, Ebonites or, um, um, Matt, you can look it up. So it's God's judgment on them. Um, and I thought, there's just, there's nothing in here that is relevant. Edom. Edom. The Edomites. Yeah, the Edomites. Yeah. So it's God's judgment on the Edomites. Um, there is basically nothing in here that's relevant to today. Um, but... You know, the more I got into it, the more I studied it, the more I studied the historical cultural background, the more I did my exegesis, the more I just prayed about it, I thought, actually, this is a powerful message for us today uh, on the power of individual and group uh, cultural, ethnic self-deception, pride and self-deception, you know, and it's like, goodness, this has so much relevance to today. So um, it is our job to come under the text and and proclaim that message to our people today. So that's obviously, that's that's very obvious. So, um, so the second thing, I mean, that's kind of like pre, actually before you, before you even preach, obviously. So, um, so the one of the things that you will want to do before you write the sermon, and that you, in a, your typical deductive sermon, one of the things you're going to present in your first three or four minutes is the big idea. So, um, are you guys familiar with a preacher named Haddon Robinson? You've heard of him, Haddon. Okay, so Haddon was, um, he was a professor at Dallas Seminary, he was a professor at Denver Seminary, and he was a professor at Gordon Conwell Seminary. He wrote a book called, um, I think it was just called Biblical Preaching, so he, a lot of preachers had this concept and a lot of preachers preach by this concept, but he's the one that just sort of made it really crystal clear and simple was that, that every sermon, well, most, most sermons um, should have one clear big idea. Um, and I'm reading a book on um, narrative journalism right now. So a narrative journalism piece, a long-form narrative journalism piece. Um, and the guy, the guy, he's this journalist, he basically, he goes by the same thing. He calls it the theme. So, and he says before he begins any article in his narrative journalism, and he coaches other journalists, write theme at the top of your page. And then you should be able to summarize in one sentence what this article is about. What's it, what is it focused on? This will really help you. Um, and you do this after your exegesis. You don't do it, because sometimes I'll come and I think I got a big idea. I think I'm gonna do this just by a cursory reading of the text and I realize, no, it's not, I don't think this is what the Lord is really saying in this text or it's not really what I wanna say to the, the congregation. So, um, so is to write, uh, so I, I write this out. So I will put it, and somewhere in my sermon, I'll put big idea, colon. And then I'll say, this is what the sermon is about. So, and the big idea uh, is obviously it's based on the text, and it has a subject and a compliment. So the subject is, what are you talking about? So, which is not as simple as it sounds, because um, a lot of sermons have 
two or three things that I'm talking about. So are you talking about prayer? Are you talking about spiritual warfare? Are you talking about God's grace? Um, are you talking about God's judgment? Are you talking about um, sexual immorality? You know, are you talking about sexual wholeness? You know, what what is it that you're talking about? Um, and there could be a lot of things from the text. So you are being, you're trying to be selective and you're trying to focus based on your best exegesis, based on what you feel like the Holy Spirit needs to say to your congregation at this time. You're trying, you're, you're, you're gonna throw, you're gonna have to throw some things out in order to focus. Now at Res, we preach for about 25 minutes. So there's just not, it's just not a lot you can say in 25 minutes about two subjects. So. It's really helpful to talk about one. So, and then the compliment, what are you saying about your subject? Okay, so, and, and let me just, just go on. So, and then I think this is really helpful, um, especially as you first start. And if you wanna get fancier and drop this, that's fine. But um, I think this is helpful. So it, the big idea is always present tense, it's always short, and it's always applicational. Um, it has an applicational orientation. So. Uh, let's say, um, um, well, my big idea for, I preached on baptism on January 10th, and my big idea was, was really simple. Um, it was, and, and again, a big idea needs some explanation, but it, it helps me really stay focused. My big idea was um, remember your baptism and be thankful. You know, that was basically my big idea. I wanted to show people and in that, I wanted to show people what remembering that looks like. What does it mean to just remember with your whole life and to shape your whole life around the fact that you've been baptized and to live in gratitude for that, you know? So, boom, that was my focus. Um, my my uh, big idea for um, last Sunday was be dazzled by Jesus and dazzle the world with Jesus, you know? So, that was it. Um, so it gives you a lot of clarity, it gives you a lot of focus on how you're gonna structure, what you're gonna include, what you're not gonna include, how you're gonna apply it, how you're gonna walk people through the text, um, how you're gonna do your, yeah, how you're gonna invite people into the text, which paintings are you gonna show them in the text, you know? Because you could show, there could be, you know, dozens of ways you could do this, but this kind of guides your, your sermon process. Um, so let me stop there. Does that does that make sense? Okay. Um, yeah. Maybe this is a good place to ask this question. But I get the sense that like sermons, for me personally, I don't remember big ideas of like the sermons that have been preached in the past yeah. you know, two months at Reds. Yeah. Like some of them I do, but not all of them. But I think they have like an aspect yeah. And I kind of like store the memory kind of in my body or in my way of life afterwards. Huh. Uh, I don't like necessarily remember the specifics, but it's yeah. an effect on me. Yeah. Um, is that like, what do you, how do you think about the fact that our congregation won't remember every service yeah. we preach? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet justify its importance to me. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, I think the um, 
again, I, I think it, it does help focus. Some people will, and some sometimes, but not everybody will every sermon. Uh, and sometimes people will come away and they'll say, you know, the Lord really spoke to me through your sermon. And I said, well, what did you get out of it? And they'll say something and I'll think, well, that wasn't really my point. Uh, but it was in the text. So if that's what the Holy Spirit wanted to speak to you about this morning, that's great. You know, I guess that's, that's what I pray for. Um, and, and at Res, we do, we really do, affective is a good way to put it because we really do preach to the heart and to the life and not just to give a bunch of expositional um, details. Um, although I hope we're doing sound exegesis, you know, but, but we, we use the phrase transformational preaching um, or sometimes we call it encounter preaching. We want you to encounter the risen Christ in this preaching moment. And that way it's, it's sacramental. Um, we don't call preaching a sacrament, but it's sacramental um, that it is, it's an encounter with Christ that leads to life transformation. So, so Matt, if you, if you walk away from the sermon and you go, oh man, Lord, help me to, help me to love the poor more, you know, and you don't remember the big idea, you know, like I yearn, I desire I desire to be more in line with you, Lord, on this particular topic. But you can't remember the big idea. I would say that was a smashingly successful sermon. You know? So the big idea is almost kind of like a vehicle to get to, to that sort of transformational encounter with Christ. Um, so, and you'll, you'll hear... Um, I, I've, I've been especially moving in this direction more and more, um, but I think the other preachers as rest do it, appeal to desire, you know, like I would rather have people walk away wanting to do something rather than just knowing, knowing about something, you know, that the desire is there. Um, like I, I, I desire to, like let's say you're preaching on sexual sin, you know, I would rather have people walk away going, not thinking, oh man, sexual sin is really bad. I gotta stop it. I would rather, and the Bible, then this Bible verse says such and such about it. I'd rather have people go, I want to obey the Lord in this area of my life. I desire that, you know, Lord, help me with that. Um, so, anyway, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that helps with that is the next thing, which is um, expressing urgency, the urgency in the text. And this is, when I came to Res, I'd been preaching out on Long Island for nine years. It was a very intellectual environment, uh, right by Stony Brook University. A lot of grad students from around the world, a lot of professors, uh, actually not just professors, but professors that were sort of like experts in their field um, and like world-renowned experts in complex carbohydrates or a particular school of philosophy or something like that, you know. So anyway, it was pretty intimidating. Um, but so I had to learn to preach at a really, 
had to be substance there, you know. Um, but and I, I felt like I kind of honed my craft of preaching out there. But when I came to Res, I noticed there was that really big lack in my preaching, and that was what Bishop Stewart um, demonstrates is just this urgency around the text. Like, so I call it the um, W D. T.M. Test of your sermon. Why does this matter? You know? And you will notice that Bishop Stewart answers that question in the first three or four minutes of the sermon. Every time. Um, I have some manuscripts of his sermon so you can study how he does it. But he's the master of this. He really is. And I... I think I've gotten a lot better at it, uh, especially sitting under his preaching. Like, not, like, why Why do you need to listen to this sermon? You know? Um, and so there's there's urgency. Yeah, he, he uses the word urgency. What's the urgency? Um, what's the urgency in this passage? Why, why do people need to listen to this? Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about, and then we'll look at some examples. Um, so... Is called the ladder of abstraction. Anybody familiar with that concept? So, this is really important just just to communication in general. So it's actually a, a I think it came out of like the 1930s. Um, I think the, I think the guy was a Japanese American guy who was like a communication scholar, and he coined this phrase, the ladder of abstraction. Um, so you'll see journalists do this all the time. Good journalism does this all the time. Um, so up at the top of the ladder, um, write uh, the words uh, abstract concepts. And then down at the bottom of the ladder, write the words uh, concrete details. So um, Abstract concepts are, and they're, they're both important. One, you need both, and you need to move up and down the ladder of abstraction. And you, you will see good preachers and good communicators and good writers, good journalists, you'll see them moving up and down the ladder of abstraction. So, so here's, for instance, uh, this article in the New York Times I read about uh, human trafficking in Southeast Asia, okay? So human trafficking in Southeast Asia is an abstract concept. You know? It's important. It really matters, but you will see the journalists start, for instance, with a really concrete situation, talking about, here's a 23-year-old guy named so-and-so who was in Phnom Penh, who was recruited for what he thought was a fishing boat, and then um, once he got on the fishing boat, and he thought he had a good job, and he got on the fishing boat, and he realized he's basically been trafficked, and now he's living as a, as a slave fishing boat and then he escaped and he tells his story and then they'll go back up the ladder and talk about um, this is not an isolated incident this happens according to United Nations estimates there are 150,000 um, people labor trafficked in Phnom Penh every year you know so abstract you know and then going up and down the ladder of abstraction so um, so preaching, let's say an example of your, let's say your subject is um, 
Well, give me a subject. So you guys give me a subject. A preaching subject, any, anything that might be a subject. Sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God. Great. Totally great concept. Rich biblical material on it. But it's really abstract. Okay? So, and you want you want to explain the abstract concept. You want to give people a, a vision of the breadth of it, the, the beauty of it, the, the, the majesty of it. But then you also want to give concrete examples. So that people can see what you're talking about. So use your imagination. Come up with a right now. Think of just right off the top of your head. What would be a concrete example of the sovereignty of God? In the Bible. What's that? In the Bible. It could be in the Bible. It could be personal. It could be just something you made up. Could be fictional. I'm just thinking of the story of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, like bringing Israel back. Okay. To the land. That would that would work. Yep. That'd be a biblical illustration. Could be a personal illustration from yeah. you as a preacher talking about a time in my life where I experienced the sovereignty of God and I realized, that, you know. Could be a story about somebody you know. Could be a story from somebody from Christian history. You know, um, my, my relationship with Christina and us getting married. There's a series of like crazy contingencies that if one of them didn't happen, we wouldn't be married. Awesome. Perfect. Going up. Coming down the ladder of abstraction. Yeah. So, so people. The way we're wired, this is how communication works. We are wired, we need both. We need the abstract concepts and we need concrete details. And if, you, if you're preaching for 15 minutes straight, abstractions, even if they're good, even if they're biblically based, people's eyes are gonna start glazing over. And I, I preach long enough, I can, I can feel it. I feel it among people that I'm preaching to. I go, they need me to come down the ladder of abstraction. So I actually, you know, I don't do this anymore, but I used to, but I do think, I think of my sermon in terms of like a chart. So like here's the beginning of the sermon, here's the end of the sermon, here's abstract up here, here's concrete on here. So where am I in the sermon? I'm abstract, now I'm doing this. Now I'm doing this, you know, so it's like, how do I sort of move up and down the ladder of abstraction? It's, and it is, it's also a biblical concept because we see Jesus, he, he, he went up and down the ladder of abstraction, you know, before there was this concept. So, um, yeah, so does that, does that make sense? You'll see, you'll see all the preachers at Reds do this, do this really well. I can feel my body like physically relax. Really? Yeah. Somehow it's just just kind of taking this concrete story. Yeah. We are story hungry creatures. Yeah. 
Um, and so we call these sermon illustrations, you know, but um, which can really, it's really broad what that means and what, what can, I tell, you know, I've, I've been coaching some preachers and they think, I just can't, I don't have any illustrations. I go, that is not true. You have thousands of illustrations in your head already. People you've met, conversations you've had, places you've been, movies you've watched, you know, books you've read, experiences you've had, um, you know, um, you don't have to use your kids all the time, you don't have to use your spouse, I mean, you can, but you just have, you have thousands of illustrations already in your head, they're just locked up there, just, so, just use your imagination a little bit, um, and they can be super simple, too, they don't have to be super complex and plot, narrative, and drama. You know, they could just be really simple, everyday things. There's a black preacher out in um, New York um, that was, um, man, I can't remember his name right now, but um, he was out at uh, my friend's church. He's now the pastor there, but um, he just used really simple, kind of homespun illustrations. And they just totally worked for him did one about his tie, you know, it's like, they're a little corny, but they totally worked. Um, so anyway, um, okay, so let's look at a couple examples. Um, one is by John Ortberg, who used to be at Willow Creek. So let's take some turns reading this. Let's start with Matt, just read a couple paragraphs, Becca, read a couple paragraphs, Caleb, read a couple so this is his sermon on Ephesians 4.15, um, Speaking the Truth in Love. Uh, I think it was titled, Loving Enough to Confront the Truth. So let's look at how he, how he does this, how you think he could improve. Um, yeah, go ahead. Let me begin this week's message with a thought experiment. Imagine picking your car up from the shop after a routine tune-up, and the technician says, this car is in great shape. Clearly you have an automatic to take care of your car. Later that day, your brakes don't work. You find out you were out of brake fluid and you could have died. You go back to the shop and say, why didn't you tell me? The technician replies, well, I didn't want you to feel bad. Plus, to be honest, I was afraid you might get upset with me. I want this to be a safe place where you feel loved and accepted. You'd be furious. You'd say, I didn't come here for a little fantasy-based ego boost. When it comes to my car, I want the truth. scenario. Imagine going to a church where you hear, don't worry if you mismanage your anger. Nobody here will confront you on that because we don't like conflict. Don't worry if you, heard lots, if you hoard lots of money. Lots of us have lots of money, but we'll never ask you to give because then some people might get mad and leave. 
Don't worry if you're passive in the face of injustice. We prefer passivity. We might talk occasionally about sin, especially sin out there, but nobody here will talk to you about your sin, because then we wouldn't feel good. The goal is to walk out of this church feeling good. Of course, transformation involves grace. We love grace. We love to hear about grace. We love to get books and messages about grace. The danger is we can misunderstand grace and start to worship feeling good instead of actually worshiping Jesus, about whom we're told by John, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We need truth. Okay, and then I'll read, and then he actually just, he said, uh, this most message focuses on the words of the Apostle Paul when he was writing to a church in Ephesus that had truth problems. They preferred hearing stuff and made that that made them feel good, but Paul wrote to them and said, instead, speaking the truth in love, then he's into the text, okay? Then he starts his exegetical work. So again, we're just looking at kind of those first three or four minutes. Um, and here's his, this was his outline to his sermon. Our pattern of avoiding the truth, our habit of forgetting God, our desperate need for hearing the truth spoken in love, okay? So, now he didn't explicitly state the big idea, like in a this is my big idea, boom. But um, what's his big idea? What would you say is his big idea? And, and is it clear? Well, I'd say in one sense his big idea is that the truth matters mm. for our daily life. Yeah. Um, it's not just something that, because it, even in the simple things of life, like a fixing car, or even yeah. life, we want truth, right? Okay. Yeah, and there may not be one like specific right answer because again, he doesn't say. Some people will some people will do their sermons and go. So the big idea I'm talking about today, or my theme for today is dot dot dot. Boom. You don't have to do that. I think it's actually better not to do that. But it's but anyway. Um, any anybody else? What would you say is his big idea? Again, if you're thinking in your own mind, um, thinking the big idea is not, it's not just informational, it's like, it's transformational. So, um, so I might write down something like, um, you know, we, something like, uh, hunger for, hunger to become a community where we speak truth and love, or something like that. Um, so there's more like, um, there's something for me to do here. There's something, I, I want to hunger for this, I want to desire this. Again, I don't know if that's what John Hortberg had in mind, but something that's more than just a propositional statement of fact, you know? There's, a, there's affect to it, there's desire in it, there's transformation in it, something. And again, that's just going to help you as you write your sermon. That's going to help you as you craft your sermon and keep it focused. So uh, the WDTM test, why does this matter? Um, how, how well did Ortberg do with that?
scenarios he gave you were life and death scenarios. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. He's, he's making you associate hearing the truth about yourself and being a matter of life and death. Without necessarily coming right out and saying, this is a matter of life or death. Right. He's, he is saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Showing, not telling. It's good. Yeah. Hey. High school literature. What's that? <laughs> High school literature. <laughs> and good journalism. Yeah. Um, anything else on that? Hey. Um, and how do you do climbing up and down the ladder of abstraction? What's that? He started at the bottom. Yeah, he did. He did. Started at the bottom. Um, you can start at the top, you know, but I think fairly quickly you have to come down because I, I just feel like it's it's sort of like just being nice to people. That's the way I look at it. It's not so much um, a great principle of preaching. It's like Augustine. It's to me, it's sort of a I'm serving you. I'm serving you, and the. I know people. People often come to church and they're they're distracted and they're, and they're sort of thinking about. It. So I just think I think it's easier. I think it's easier to just start with start down lower on the ladder and then work up because it just it's easier to just it grabs me emotionally. It gives me something I can see. It sparks my imagination and. Um, and then I move up the ladder of distraction. But again, you don't have to do it that way. There's different ways to do it. But but yeah, anything else on that? On his use of the ladder of abstraction? By the time he's transitioned to the biblical text, um, he's given two really concrete examples. Well, actually three, because he's talked about church as well. And it's kind of like... Now we're going to talk about this concept of speaking the truth in love, which is abstract. You know, it's a really important concept, but it's abstract. But I already know, I already know what that, I have a picture, I have three pictures of what that means in my mind. So now as he's going to walk through the biblical text, it's like, okay, I know what he's talking, I know, I can see what he's talking about. I can see specific, I'm starting to see specific examples in my own life, maybe where this applies, maybe when people have done this to me, maybe when I have not done it to people. And um, it's firing my imagination. And now he's going to get into the biblical text. And I kind of got this. Yeah, it's, it's already gripping. Um, okay. So let's look at a Matt Woodley sermon. Okay. And I'm going to critique myself on this because I think there's some room for improvement here. So, but. You get some post-sermon blues. I didn't have blues. I had post-sermon um, self-feedback. Okay. That's all. That's healthy. Yeah. <laughs> Post-sermon blues is not healthy. Okay. So, Matt, you go ahead and start. We'll just go paragraph by paragraph. If you head north on I-35 west out of Minneapolis, take exit 220 and then go five miles on County Road 6, you'll hit the farm home of Kay Willis Pinnefrock. It's one of the most welcoming places on planet Earth. For eight years, I've had the privilege of being Kay and Willis's pastor in Barnum, Minnesota, population 460. Willis, a retired farmer and furnace repairman, and 
Pegg, a homemaker, church leader, and fabulous cook, created a zone of radical hospitality for the weary, lonely pilgrims of life who need a refuge. I will never forget the farm dinners with roast beef, mashed potatoes, and gravy, green beans, biscuits, and at least three kinds of homemade pies. I would go back to Barnum, Minnesota any time. Kay and Willis would welcome me with open arms. Now let me tell you about another zone of radical hospitality. It's the home of Leon and Nancy Peacock, also part of Minnesota. In their career as foster parents, Leon and Nancy visited over 100 teenage boys, mostly boys that no one wanted, not even the state of Minnesota. They were boys Nancy Peacock had sadly become the rejects of our society. tempting to think that what Willis and Kay and then what Nancy and Leon did was something unusual or unique, but for Christians it's not supposed to be unique. It's just what the church does. We create a zone of radical hospitality. It's, it's what the church is. We are a zone of radical hospitality. Or, to put it another way, the church embodies the welcome of Jesus for life's weary pilgrims. And then I transition in the text. Uh, the gospel reading, all of this radical hospitality begins with Jesus. Look with me at our gospel reading for this morning, a simple but beautiful passage from Matthew 11, 28-30. Notice Jesus' simple, open-armed, huge-hearted welcome that begins this passage in verse 28, come to me. And then I was off and running. Now, one thing that I do, uh, I, I like to do is, and some preachers I know don't don't like doing this, but um, I will often tell people, like, look 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 at verse look at verse twenty eight with me, you know, um, and I might even say, do you notice what it says there, you know, um, just to get people more trying to get people more engaged with reading it, looking at it for themselves, um, observing it for themselves, you know, so they're kind of observing it with me. So I'll give them like little prompts, um, and and I'm also trying to show that you can you can read the Bible too. It's it's like you you don't have to be a rocket scientist to do what I'm doing up here. You just simple observation skills. Um, so that's that's another topic. But I I think I find that it it's it helps me convey this idea of like I'm a guide. We're looking. We're discovering this together. Um, so I'm trying to give them opportunities to enter into that, actually, and not just go so fast with my own information. But let's slow down. Let's look at this together. Um, so anyway, um, okay, so let's look at Matt Woodley. Let's look at this fool. Um, what would you say is his big idea? What's his subject? There you go. Yep. Or it should be. It can be. Yeah. It's called to be. Yeah. Um, that comes through pretty clear. Okay. And how about, um, well, let's look at the ladder of abstraction first. So, uh, how about the ladder of abstraction?
it's goes starts at the bottom, goes up to the top. Because hospitality, it's a great concept, but it's abstract, right? So when I say the word hospitality, I step, what do I what do you see when I say the word hospitality? Probably nothing. You don't see anything. You just think of a concept. But when I talk about Willis and Kay, and I talk about you got to go way out of town, and it's in this small town, and they may have these fabulous farm dinners, and the three homemade kinds of pies, and Leon and Nancy and their foster boys. Oh, now, okay, now I got a picture of hospitality. So, um, so, and, um, and then how about the, uh, why does this matter? That's where, honestly, I think it could have been a little stronger, so. Um, how do you think I could have made it a little bit? I mean, it's implied, it's not bad, but it's not a Bishop Stewart kind of urgency. <laughs> not that I'm trying to be Bishop Stewart, but I, I think I could have, I think I, if like a 10 is super urgent, this is probably a five or six, and I could have brought it up to a seven or an eight. So how, how do you think I could have done that? So give me some help here, preacher coaches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Let's see. <laughs> well, maybe this is just a thought. I don't know if it's good, but it's testing. Um, maybe you took out the first story. Yeah. Perhaps. Um, and just did the second story. Just I I did thought think about that one yeah. story probably would have done it. Um, I let I first my first thought was oh I like the first story because it shows like oh anyone can do this you know huh. you, you see this this is very normal. Right. The second one is just like, oh wow, I don't have access to a bunch of boys here. Yeah. But I think like maybe if you just did the one story, if you used the second story, you showed like uh, here are some like everyday people who are showing radical hospitality to people who are rejects even mm. in the state. Yeah. Um, what are you doing? Mm. Maybe that would have just been okay. a little bit more of a yeah. exclamation point. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe like work down later in the sermon some like ideas and possibilities. Maybe this could have come in more towards the end, kind of like here's here's just ordinary people opening their homes. Yeah. You could do that. Anyway, that's that's I like that. No, that's good. That's good. I. I like the Finifrock so much, I just, like, I, gotta, <laughs> I thought about cutting one of the stories, it's like, I can't cut one, I gotta do, I gotta do both of them. Have you guys ever heard the phrase um, in uh, writing, kill your darlings, have you ever heard that? I can't remember who it was, but it's a famous phrase, it just means you just gotta, you gotta cut even your good stuff that you really like, um, so you have to kill your darlings, it's like, oh, I just... Like me, it's like I love both of these stories. Yeah. Well, it's probably gonna get, I'm gonna get into the text a little quicker, and it's, and, I, and so one story does it. One story is good enough. I gotta kill one of my darlings here. Which one am I gonna kill? So anyway, it's a little brutal, but um, but that's why we feel we get very attached to these to our to our things. Another way to look at it too is like um, preaching is like you're you're like a filmmaker, um, and you have all these scenes that you could put in the storyline of your sermon but you have to cut some of them 
So you have to cut them and you like, like, I'll put it in an extra DVD over here and maybe some other sermon, I'll, I'll pull that scene out some other time. So, but you always, as, as preachers, sometimes we're, our temptation is probably to say too much rather than too little. So anyway, any other ways you think I could have? We should have a deleted scene section. A deleted scene section? Stay after. <laughs> I got the extra deleted scenes. I didn't make it into this. There's some really good ones. Um, yeah, anything else? I was just wondering, I don't know uh, if it's a good thing to put into an intro, but even just like stressing, like, I don't know if statistics are the best thing to put in, but like, yeah. listen, like, there's real need for hospitality, huh. not mm. just out there in Minnesota with these particular people, but here in Wheaton, uh. or I don't know, like, maybe more concrete, like, local examples of, like, we need. Like, hospitality is not just something people do out there in extraordinary ways, but, like, here, to help. I, that would have, that's really good. I think that would be one way to just create some more urgency, bring it, like, right here. Yeah. Like, the need yeah. for hospitality right here. Exactly. Like, I mean, our Advent gift is to the yeah. refugee families. That's right. That's, it's immediate need, right? Yeah. There. This need of hospitality. Right. That would have worked. And I probably could have done that in two, three sentences. Yeah, exactly. It really brief, crisp sentences. Yeah. Made that connection. Any idea, Any advice for me, Becca? No, I was going to say, similar to Matt's idea, the urgency being like, what would have happened if we were going to that's Oh, that was really good. So, so like, like if Will or Leon and Nancy, if they weren't there, if they didn't practice yeah. that, you know, those boys just would have fallen through the cracks. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a there's a cost sort of to not practicing hospitality, and yeah. then yeah, and I, I like that. That would be good. I was also thinking about going to um, it's just something like something like isn't that a beautiful picture of hospitality? Could you imagine like a, a whole church? Filled with people that are practicing hospitality with their everyday, ordinary life. What impact would that have on their community? Um, and and it's just sort of like giving this kind of vision. It's like, you know, the Lord has called us to that in this passage. And he's given us this beautiful invitation to work with him to provide that hospitality. So that's what I was thinking. That's one way I could have done it and created. But I also, uh, these are all really good ideas. You guys have I also thought the second story uh, shows more of like the inconvenience of hospitality. Mm, yeah. Whereas the first one maybe doesn't so much. Yeah. Uh, like the second story tells you like like you're like when I was reading it, or Rebecca was reading it, I just kept thinking to myself, like, oh, you know, it's not enough to just kind of like help these boys, I gotta have them in my house. Uh, you know? I gotta like live with them, I gotta right. introduce them to my guests and you know, I didn't raise them, but I'm trying to do my best say at the table with just like like their example of they're not ashamed of the presence of these yeah. boys in their house they are their own children and, and yes it was inconvenient in some ways but um, they like they like totally scorned the inconvenience yeah. and I don't know it just kind of shows me that like wow when Josh my neighbor in